Right, good evening. Welcome to the latest episode of the Big Issues podcast. As ever, I am with my co-host, James Roxburgh, and this week we will be talking about entitlement reform, looking at the entitlement programmes in the United States, talking about Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, SSDI, TRICARE, the State Children's Health Insurance Programme, looking at uh, also job programs and welfare reform. I've got the computer a bit close to me this time so I can get the lines up. Uh, for those of you who understand why I'm talking about that, remember, I'll refer you back to last week's episode of the podcast. So, we'll be talking about entitlement reform. We're going to start by talking about Medicare. For those of you familiar with the podcast, will know how these type of episodes work, where James starts a section, then I go in a section, we go on an alternate basis until we run the document through, with, and then we'll have a long, and during our questions, we'll have a long proceeding discussion about ideas, so that's the purpose of the podcast. And I think I've said enough, so let's uh, let's begin, James. Let's talk about Medicare reform, shall we? Yes, that's, okay, so, now, what, first of all, before, before we all start on, uh, what, what before we start Medicare and all these uh, pro, uh, social programs? What is your view on Medicare? My view is that I'm in favour of Medicare. I believe in the program. I think that providing care to those over sixty-five with relatively low out-of-pocket charges is a perfectly sensible thing. I think there do need to be adjustments. I think everybody agrees there needs to be adjustments to the program. We need to look at relook at the roles again to show the right people are on it. We need to tackle the fraud in the program. We need to ensure that payments are actually delivered effectively. We need to ensure that the costs aren't too high. We need to ensure that it's actually sufficient on the payroll tax. But I think overall the program is a very good idea. Yeah. So, um, obviously, it's been underfunded through the presidency of Donald Trump. Yeah. Now, to to raise money for it, should um, should the U.S. government raise the payroll tax from one point four five percent? To what in order uh, in order to ensure self efficient sufficiency of the Medicare program? Right. Well, I've said it should be raised to about four point eight percent in the payroll tax, uh, because I believe four point four point eight to five percent will ensure enough revenues. Remember this: the one point four five percent Medicare payroll tax, as the moment, raises nearly three hundred and fifty billion dollars. What now? The Medicare program is, is nearly eight hundred billion because you got Part A and you got Part B, which is the uh, hospital element. Part C, which is paying private insurance companies, and Part D, which is the prescription drug element. What I would do is I would say the five percent payroll tax must cover all four of these social programs, so there are no, for example, no cost, no co-insurance payments, no out-of-pocket costs. So you turn the Medicare program into like the German social insurance system where people who pay get total coverage of all medical bills. This is a system that I would be very much for as I believe we've got to do it like this. Um, It's going to require raising the payroll tax. I know it's not popular at all, but it has to be done. Otherwise, you'll just constantly have federal spending on these programs and that can't go on. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And um, to, and uh, and right now, Medicare people just think it's just for the elderly. It's not. You cannot if you're if you're young and disabled, yeah. you also, you also might benefit from Medicare. If you're on dialysis, you might you might also benefit from Medicare as well. So, do you think they need to reform Medicare so it's just the eligibility is just for the elderly yes, and I, no one else yeah. can use it? 
Oh, I do think that. I think that we have to say uh, Medicare was designed for those above 65. It shall be for those above 65. Now, what I personally would support is to get every single child on the state children's health insurance program. The reason I would support uh, the S-CHIP scheme is because it has low co-insurance payments, it has low premiums, and it covers all medical bills. So I'd like to see us turn to the S-CHIP program for all children, and I would like yeah. us to reform SSDI so we could have a new disability health insurance program for the disabled people, which I think, again, is a perfectly sensible thing to do. Rather than just sticking them all on Medicare, which I don't think is responsible, because Medicare was only there for elderly people. All right, okay. So, should we end co-insurance payments in Medicare? Should it be yeah. fully funded by the government, or do you think you still have to pay a bit of premiums to get the benefit? No, I would abolish co-insurance payments. I would abolish Medicare premiums. And I would raise the payroll tax in order to do that. I think Medicare premiums are a farce. I think co-insurance payments are a farce. And we must cover... Medicare has to cover all medical bills for all treatments. Uh, it must do that. Now, to do that and to make itself sufficient without federal funds, you're going to have to raise the payroll tax. Mm. Yeah. And um, so how do we strengthen current, current provisions of care? Uh, inside Medicare, inside the entire US health system. Well, I think it's by ending variability. So take the skilled nursing facilities, for example. Now, in the skilled nursing facilities, you receive total coverage for the first 21 days. Then from days 21 to days 100, you then get a variability increase of co-insurance for every day that you're in the skilled nursing facility. Then you pay uh, total coverage above this. You also have things like lifetime reserve days, um, etc. Now, I would end these initiatives. I would simply say that for an elderly per, for an elderly per, fuck it up, for an elderly person, whatever care they require, they shall receive. No limit, no deductibles, no co-insurance, none of the SNF nonsense. Just a simple: uh, you can come in, and we will treat you for as long as medically is required. Not how long the government says you should be treated for, or private insurance firms. So that's how you improve okay, the provision so of care. You improve the provision of care by, in fact, ending the current constraints by the limits, by the lifetime reserve days, and simply having very much of a walk-in system for people who will become sick. So this is our last question before we move on to Medicaid. Um, should the current Part A, B, C, D model uh, of Medicare remain or should we begin to yeah. merge parts yeah. together so we have an ABCD model or an ABC yeah. D model what, what do you think I would merge part A part B because part A covers sort of the, the actual care part B covers the equipment and providers of care part C covers is known as Medicare plus choice which is where Medicare pays private insurance firms for total coverage of services and part D which is the prescription drugs now what I would do is I'd say Medicare Part A, Medicare Part B merge as one service and also Part D would be called, so Medicare Part A, Part B, Part D merge as Medicare and we'd offer Medicare plus choice for people who would like the private healthcare system, uh, Medicare to pay for their private health services. Right, okay. But I suspect people would just okay. use Medicare, not Medicare plus choice. Mm-hmm. So should we move on to Medicaid then? Yeah. So, 
Let's just move on to Medicaid. So, with Medicaid, you've got a $750 billion program, James. A $750 billion program that is totally run by the federal government. Should we devolve it to the state governments? Mm. So, you know, there's a benefit and there's a negative for each of them. If you devolve it to the state government, what will happen, as we see time and time again, the states throughout history, and you give states some power, they take advantage of it and do it to their advantage. They rather than the advantage of the people in the states. If you keep it the federal government, though, what you do is have this, you know, huge bureaucracy of loads of stuff that has to happen before even the basic things can happen in the first place. So the issue. So what? So what? Many people would suggest instead of instead of um, instead of just handing it over to the states, keep it in the federal hands, but give the states the power to, you know overrule bureaucracy the big state bureaucracy use state laws but make it run by the federal government shouldn't we say that since the states do s chip so remarkably well which they do that we should in fact do it installments that we should say well take the state of ohio we'll give you 50 billion dollars but we will give you 12 and a half billion dollars every quarter contingent on the assurance that your poor people are actually getting good medical care and if they're not and if you're just using it for other means then we'll re-centralize it back to the federal government well again again that depends on the stuff because then a state after they get this money then could say uh like I say, you're infringing on state rights, and then go to the Supreme Court and cause all this nonsense again. Sure. I think I think it would be a lot simpler if we just keep it with the with the big, you know, a big uh, a big centralized thing, rather than giving it to the states. Maybe maybe over periods, like you said, maybe it would you could say we'll give you some, we'll give you some, and you know, uh, devolve. Uh, we might devolve some of it towards you, and then a bit more each year. Uh, but I feel like I feel like in many states, they will just take advantage of it. And if you give it to the federal government, there's no way anybody can get advantage of it. Also, making big changes in Medicaid as well, which many politicians are asking for, especially Democrats. Making, and I know you are as well, yeah. making big changes in Medicaid, if it's run by the state, it's going to be almost near impossible to do in the Republican states. And oh, it's going to no, be much no, easier no, to no, Democrats. No, no, no. So, you're like, so, 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 no, but you got, so what you'll have is a huge yeah. gap in care from somebody coming from Alabama with somebody and uh, somebody in California. But that isn't true because I would argue that even though, as you rightly identified, I am a Democrat and proud to be so, that there are Republican governors like, for example, Charlie Baker, Larry Hogan, Bobby Jindal of Louisiana, that have made some of the biggest steps in progress on healthcare reform. Not yeah. the Democrats. And, and, you know, and, and I'm not arguing that some Republicans aren't. I'm not, I'm, and there obviously will be some Democrats who don't want a Medicare reform, right. vice versa. I'm not, I'm not arguing against that. What I'm arguing against, there will be states that are left behind just by the sheer fact that the government doesn't want to introduce change to Medicare policy. And that, and that the will government... be a case no matter what. Whether, whether it be Alaska or, or whether it be Alaska to Hawaii, yeah. it doesn't matter because one, there will be at least a few states but then surely it's the job of the federal government to say you're quite clearly incompetent of handling your Medicaid program. We're taking it under control until you become more competent again. So the, it's the yeah, absolutely, model. absolutely. So then, then I don't see the point to get the states in the first place just for them to fail. Because there are some states that will do excellent programs with their healthcare. Massachusetts, yeah. Vermont, um, Rhode Island, Lincoln Shaffey when he was the governor then, um, Maryland. Um, Louisiana, Wisconsin, they've done amazing healthcare programs that's better than the federal bureaucracy. So isn't it, I mean, 
It's a debate we can have for ages, but I think personally, we should say, if you are a governor of a state and you come to the federal government with a clear healthcare plan for your poor people that will ensure no out-of-pocket costs, total coverage of services, and you will actually do it, then here, take the portion of Medicare, Medicaid that you're entitled to and do the programme. Mm. But again, it, it will it will come down to the fact again, which I don't, which I don't really agree with, that people around the country be receiving different quality of care depending on what their governor's uh, opinion. People are already is. receiving different qualities of care by their insurance companies that are already receiving yes, no. different qualities of care. Yes, 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 yes. But but, but the insurance the insurance companies they get absolutely done by it now, aren't they? By the, by especially by Biden, Biden's going after the insurance companies. Quite right. But Biden right, can't right. go after the states. The like a president in a few years' time can't say. Can. How dare you be democratically elected and get elected from these policies Listen, and then you follow Barack through on Obama them? Obama spent most of his time taking the piss out of Scott Walker of Wisconsin for being a prat. Bill Clinton made mockery of Tommy Thompson of Wisconsin. No, no, you know? I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying, but it's going to be a lot harder now. It's going to be a lot harder to introduce sufficient Medicare policies if the states have their own rules on Medicare. Oh, on Medicaid, sorry, not Medicare, Medicaid. Do you think it's a case that state governors and the state local officials know their people better than the federal government could know their people. They're, you know, for example, Jamie Pitzer of Illinois knows the people of Chicago better than the people of Washington, D.C. Yeah, I I completely agree with that, Dad, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean they know how to run a healthcare better than men, no, but better they, than the federal they government. Know what they know what some healthcare people need. So if you go to a small state like Rhode Island, where the Shafis used to run in for decades, they know how to deal with that healthcare program, surely. It again, again, it all, it, all, it all comes down to what state you're talking about. I mean, if you go, if you, and it all comes down to the states, and then it all comes down to the governor, and then oh, it I comes agree. down to the elections of governors. Well. Like and I don't, for and I don't think, and I don't think the healthcare of the people. Well, I mean, in this country, in every country, it's kind of is down to the people who are there. But I don't think it should come down to individual people to decide how much money or how much time, how much investment. It's going to go to your states and your healthcare. It should be going. It should be going from the federal government. Everybody has equal healthcare. Everybody gets this equal equal amount per population. Or however they do. I don't know how exactly they do fund it, but it should be like that. Rather than saying, "Here you go, Alabama. This is X amount of money. Spend it how you want on healthcare." Fair enough. Because what? Because because what 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 you'll get is like pharmacy, pharmaceutical companies running going up the ranks as well. Because late, because they will, they will obviously lobby and lobby. It's easier to lobby a state than it is to lobby the government. Much easier. Yeah, but it's and easier, it is to lobby a it's state. Easier to tell state governors step in the states time to go away than it is the federal government. Yeah, it is. It is. But I mean, are you going to if, if a if a if a massive pharmaceutical company offered you offered the state government, I don't know, like ten million pounds to do this? They're probably going to say no. We can get ten million pounds of just increase in tax by not point not 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 one percent. But if if the same if the same thing happened in the case of um, in the case of you go, go, going to like a state like Alabama or support a state like you know North Dakota or South Dakota and said here you go ten million dollars if you do this they're more likely to accept it. All right, let's move on. So right now Medicaid is currently really for those below thirty five thousand dollars on average. How would you modify that? Would you raise the earnings limit? Would you lower the earnings limit? What alterations would you make? Well, as as a British citizen, and I think you agree with this, Dad. Yeah, we, we pride ourselves on having 
free healthcare, free on the point of use, but practically free healthcare. Absolutely. So and yeah, and so I think I think every civilized country will, should have a form of free at the point of use healthcare. Uh, most European countries do. I'm trying to think. Uh, I know Germany have a kind, have a different kind of style, but it is you know still free at the point of it's use healthcare. You pay, it's a privatized, isn't it, rather than a than nationalized, isn't it? The way the system it? works in Germany, for example, it is practically a free at the point of use system in that people who go to their hospitals, who go to their doctors, are not required to pay a charge for that service. All they're required to do if they're poor, they receive total coverage of services through the state tax. And if they're if it's rich, they get a private insurance plan. And by law, private insurance companies are required to cover all the medical bills. So it's not like America where you say, "I've been to my doctor's a three thousand dollar bill." It's basically as long as you pay your premiums, they have to cover all medical bills. So it's a social well, insurance. Yeah. So and um, so so I mean that, that doesn't just help back up my point that the, that most civilized countries on earth have. Yeah. Oh, actually, I'm going to say most. It's not. It's not like. It's not one, all countries, all, all apart, apart one. from one, <laughs> all, all but one has has a free at the point of view healthcare. Correct. Um, so in 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 America, the fact that it only applies to the only applies to the poorest, it's I would say it's a starting point. Absolutely, it's a starting point. But then I would raise yeah. that. I would raise that from thirty five thousand to I don't know maybe fifty thousand. Maybe below the fifty thousand gets this Medicaid uh, subsession, and then maybe raise it again to set, set sixty thousand. Raise it again to seventy thousand. But how would you fund it? Because raising it to fifty, raising it to fifty thousand is a sound plan. But how would you fund yeah. further raising to seventy, to a hundred, to one hundred twenty thousand? Well, it's simple. It's simple. These usual people who are on seventy, a hundred, and all of this amount of money here, yeah, they will obviously, presumably, majority of them have healthcare insurance plans. We get rid of that and then just say the healthcare insurance plan that you're paying, you average it out each, and make it national insurance. Yeah, but you can't abolish the private insurance system. You know, every no, you can't. Yeah, you can't. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that. Tried, except for you, Reagan and Bush. You can. You can't. You can't. Like you can't. You can't abolish national uh, private healthcare in this country. It's just impossible to abolish it because there will be people that need it. Correct. But but what I'm saying, what what I'm saying, is that instead of instead of you know having to pay the let's say let's say it costs maybe a grand. Um, a year or something. I, I don't know the exact cost. I haven't been. I haven't been. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't had to look at American healthcare. What are you system. looking at? What Let's say it costs a grand. What's the cost? We'll say. We'll say. We'll say. You see, somebody having sixty oh, grand. Oh, cost of insurance in America, right? Uh, well, it's seven thousand dollars a year for one person, according to Kaiser. Yeah. Okay, so let's say. Um, let's say children are free, and let's well, say 12, instead instead of that seven thousand dollars. Sorry. It's it's twelve. It goes from three hundred a month to one thousand a month. So, seven hundred. Should we say about uh, yeah, about six fifty a month. So yeah, about seven thousand dollars a year. Hello. Can you hear me, James? Oh, he, James's connection has gone down. Oh no, I'm back. I'm back. Okay, I'm back. James is back. Okay, there you go. It's because there's four red bars on your screen. Right. So basically, seven thousand dollars a year. Okay, right. So if it's seven thousand dollars a year, yeah. Um, the whole what what I think what what I think is that if you give, I think national insurance for you know somebody earning an equivalent wage uh, wage is about what I think something about how much is the national insurance for Britain if you're going to have somebody in the equivalent uh, seven, wage. So what? Twelve percent divides seventy thousand, so seven eighty four hundred dollars. So there you go, and it's so, so that's a that's a four grand decrease, ish. 
but for its grand decrease. And I think, and I think, um, and I think people would like that. And you, what what you're saying to them is, you, you have the option. You have the option to pay your to pay your private insurance, get private healthcare. Who, by law, don't technically even need to pay out for your healthcare in the first place. Correct. Or you can go with a government brand, which is cheaper, is uh, cheaper, more affordable. Yeah. And they do, by law, have to pay out your healthcare <laughs> because you. So. So well, the I feel like, I feel like trusted, the... though. This is a very important thing to make. Is the government are not trusted. You have to understand that from 1968 till 2020, they have the Americans have had anti-government nonsense pumped down their throats, relentless anti-government the rhetoric. Right? Can we continue this? Yes, we can. Marvelous, marvelous. Twenty minutes in, we were. Yep. Okay. So uh, for those who know just to happen, I sent the. Uh, clicked end the recording and i realized that you could actually keep going with the recording so we keep going with the recording uh where were we up to we were talking about the medicaid threshold and helping uh offering people government health insurance that was it and yeah. i was making the point that, that for the 40 years americans have had anti-government nonsense pumped down their throats mercilessly so how do we change the mindset that we go back to the days of Roosevelt, the days of Johnson, that government is mother, father, and it will always help you no matter what, better than these privatised insurance companies. Well, the thing the thing in America, it's always been, it's always since the dawn of the, its government, it's always been against big centralised systems. Yeah. It's always been against it. And it's just, it's just a natural thing that Americans feel. I mean, in most European countries, and most, you know, I'm going to say, all countries apart from America, they don't. They they understand that the government controls most things because we we pay them to do that. That's that's what we do. That's what our taxes are. We are paying them to do a bit of this, to, to do to do some of this, to you know, to, to give to give our children education, to give to give us healthcare, to give us you know pensions after we retire. That's 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 what we pay the government for. Mm. And the and the Americans have always been against this. This this is why this is why their educational establishments have gone uh, are not are not as not as high as we expect them to be. It's why their it's why their healthcare is not free, um, free at the point of use, mate, should I say? And I think, and I think if America, if America, you know, gain trust in the government, they, they can see they can see what the Medicaid program is doing is good. They can see that without, without a shadow of a doubt. The Medicaid program for for the people under for the people owning uh, earning less than thirty five grand a year is a good system for them. And I think if they can see that it would work for you know higher earners, it would wait, it would work for the richest of the rich. As well, because this will be this will be entitlement for everybody. I think it genuinely would be one of the best systems America have introduced, and it would gain trust in the American in the Amer uh, in the American government. And I think the people, the American, the USA people, as much as people like to joke about them, aren't that thick. They would understand that what the government's trying to do is good, and all it just takes is one radical, not radical, but you know, Bold. you know, brave, brave, yeah, brave politician. Because, I'm guessing it's going to probably be they're probably going to be a Democrat to come along and say and say, Do you know what? We're gonna try this free healthcare program over my term. Well, if it they, doesn't they, work, well, it oh, doesn't work. But it's they've they've been saying that since the days of Roosevelt, right? President yeah, famously Clinton goes, What was it? Six for sixty years America presidents have stood up here and tried to have free healthcare. President Roosevelt tried, President Truman tried, President Nixon tried, President Carter tried. And each and every time, the special interests have defeated the hopes of the American people, but not this time, right? So you've had Roosevelt, Truman, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Clinton, Bush, 
Obama have all Obama. tried. And none yeah. of them have achieved universal health care. Now, okay, I accept the debate is becoming more mainstream around the idea of universal coverage. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg. But how do you persuade Republicans and independents that, I presume you're going for the Medicare for All program, that some form yeah. of universal health care or health insurance program would work? I think, I think, I think the way to do it is not, is not to persuade the Republicans. You don't need to do that. You need to persuade the public it's a good idea. And then win the Senate. Once you've won the Senate, you've then, you've then, you don't even need to persuade the Republicans because the Republicans won't be an issue. You can just pass okay, it like okay. that so and it would go for it. When they did Medicare, when President Johnson acted Medicare, which I've got accepts, Medicare and Medicaid were two of the biggest steps towards healthcare, universal healthcare, okay? He got two-thirds of the Republicans in the Senate to vote for him. 20-odd Republicans, I remember, voting for Medicare. He won that because he won an argument. Ensuring mm. that old people didn't die because of a lack of medical funds is a good idea. Yeah, I'm not saying the president can't do that either. But I'm saying, if they convince the public and they, comp- and, and if they convince the public to vote for them, there's no, there's absolutely no way that you even need to worry about the Republicans and what they think. But the fact is, you can easily convince the Republicans as well. There are, there are logical thinking Republicans, as much as people like to joke there isn't. But there are, there are logical ones who go, do you know what? Free, free at the point of use healthcare or, you know, Medicare for all is a good, is a good idea. It just needs to be done properly. And that's the thing. I don't think any politician since, since, uh, since FDR and before FDR has ever actually fully had the bravery enough to just go and just say to everybody, we're going to have free healthcare. I don't care what you think. Theodore None of them have done that. Theodore every Roosevelt. single one has, every single one of them been, you know, tiptoeing around to say, do you know what? We're trying to feel to this side. We're trying to feel the, and you see one of a straight clear path going straight through, going on the side that they believe and say, this is what's going to happen. But if they vote for it, they vote for it. If they Clinton don't, they don't. Wanted to do. That's what Bill Clinton wanted. Bill Clinton wanted the 1993 Clinton healthcare plan, universal healthcare free of charge, and it died in the house, and it costed him Congress. Mm. Well, because well, to be fair, what what Clinton didn't really do as much as what I would expect him to have done is really, you know, try and encapsulate the the public. He didn't do that with that policy as much as he did with the crime. You know, the gun act. What was the gun, gun act? Yeah, yeah, the Brady Bill, the assault weapons ban. The, the Brady Bill. The, the amount, the amount, the cap. The you know the way he captivated the public with that bill. Was absolutely was unbelievable compared to what he did with the uh, with the healthcare. I mean, there's a story from Daniel Patrick Moynihan, where it was David Gergen, Bill Clinton, George Stephanopoulos were in a room, and they said the republic, and they wrote the doll, Bob Dole and Daniel Patrick Moynihan did the Dole Moynihan healthcare bill, which was every American must take out private medical insurance. Private medical insurance must cover all medical bills. It must charge no more than fifteen percent of the income, and Medicare and Medicaid will be there for Medicare will be there for the elderly people. And they said, Mr. President, if you compromise on this, you will get healthcare done. In the same way yeah. that Ronald Reagan had compromised on Social Security in '83 and got Social Security aid for fifty years. And Clinton goes, no, we will not come. We will not compromise on this bill, you know, like that. That was more. That was more of a Teddy Kennedy impression than a Bill Clinton impression. <laughs> but and David Gergen wrote 
healthcare reform died today at 12.8.51pm because of a lack of compromise. And personally, if I was Clinton, I don't know what Lyndon Johnson did. Sod the debate. We're going to run. We are not going to put any other bill on the Senate floor and you will vote for this bill because I'm telling you to vote for this bill. And if you don't, I will chop you up your ball sacks, as Johnson would do, and make your life miserable. <laughs> that is what Johnson often threatened. Yeah. I mean, Johnson was a genius of the Senate because famous as I got the Civil Rights Bill done, Medicare done, he said, I will not put anything other than these bills on the Senate floor so you will have nothing else to debate. <laughs> what are you going to do? And they rammed it through in 12 days. Anyways, uh, what medi- what modification, what should we seek to bring in the uninsured onto Medicaid? Um, what should we seek to bring the uninsured into Medicaid? Yeah. Um, yes, I think we should. Uh, I think we should. Because the uninsured, majority of the people who are uninsured are, you know, people who can't afford the insurance rate. And the majority of people who are uninsured as well are, I'm not going to say, are going to be the people who are just above the age where Medicaid's cut off for them and the chat and the and the f and the s chip is cut off for them as well it's they're just about the level where where they just haven't they don't have enough to afford insurance and yet they don't have but they have but they're too old to get the medicaid program or you know they're not they're not poor enough to get the medicaid program and i think and i think there needs to be there needs to be a situation where the uninsured do need do might not be medicaid not be a new setup system but they need to make sure that they are at, uh, don't have to worry about if they if they you know if they do fall ill or no big deal they get hit by a car or something like that happens like that they don't have to cough up ninety grand straight up because of because they've been because they've done that I feel like the only charge should be put onto a Medicaid style or Medicare style system. Personally, I would put the uninsured onto Medicaid. If they're uninsured children, I put them onto S chip. If they were uninsured poor people, I'd put them onto Medicaid. If they were uninsured, able-bodied, middle-class people, I'd put them back onto private health insurance by tax-deductible health insurance. Um, but I do agree. But how do you ensure longevity in the program? How do you ensure that Medicare and Medicaid, in your view, are still around by 2070? Well, it's the same. It's the same way. It's the same way Britain did this with the NHS. Because when, because when, uh, you know, Bevan and Attlee introduced the NHS, people just thought, you know what, the Conservatives will come along and get rid of it in a few years' time. That's what they thought. Yeah. And the, and the thing and the thing and the thing what needs to happen is that it didn't happen because of, because obviously there was consensus politics at the time because of you know the World War II when nobody was really changing any of their policies particularly massively. I mean, the were politics are usually the same between the Labour Party. And the conservatism until Margaret Thatcher, and um, I think, I think, I think what needs to happen is that the fact that you have, you you need, you need to make this such a such a good program, yeah. such a program that so many people rely on, that it'll be political suicide yeah. to get rid of it. That's what that's I what you need to do. You, you need to make it so so impressive, so useful to yeah. it doesn't matter how many people, but so useful that if you get rid of it, it is like. It would be, it'd be like, it'd be like a president of the United States getting rid of the Second Amendment. Yeah. That's what it would be like. <laughs> exactly. And you, and you, and you need to make it like that. Yeah, it's like social security. Any president knows if they get rid of social security or abolish it or privatize it, in the words of President Eisenhower, that party will not be heard of for one hundred years. It would be political suicide. And I think making a version of healthcare to like that 
would, in effect, force the Republicans to see sense. I do agree with you. In the same way the Tories were forced to see sense on the NHS, though, of course, Liz Truss wants to privatise the NHS because she is not a very pleasant person. Now. No. So, should I ask you on... Um, yeah, S-chip. S-chip. Okay, so, should there be a contribution in order to receive the S-chip scheme, rather than it yeah. being within the social security system. I do agree. I think we're going to take S-chip out of the social security system. Uh, what I would say is that the families of the children who receive S, the state children's health insurance programme should take 3% of their earnings and pay for it, S-chip. In return, all medical bills will be covered. So rather than the federal government or the social security system pumping more money into this, this programme, I would simply say put it as a, a statewide insurance scheme, but standards on, for example, total yeah. coverage of medical bills. If there, if there should be a monthly contribution, how should it be done? By, by, by percentage payments or fixed taxes? Or which, what do you think? Uh, I've, I think I said the 3%. So I'd say percentage payment. I wouldn't say fixed cash because you can index cash payments to inflation. And if the cash payment's higher than the standardised wages or the cost of living adjustment, then you'd have people unaffording med basic medical necessities for the children. I think that's inhumane. But I think percentage... So, so, so should, there, should there be a total coverage of all medical bills then? Yeah. To ensure that no, there's no one out of pocket? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a pretty quick answer. And I think everybody listening to this podcast will probably agree with you with. So there, there's, no one, there's no one, I've never met a single person yet who genuinely believes that children, disabled people, elderly people and poor people should not have their medical bills totally covered. If you do genuinely believe they shouldn't, uh, you're mentally insane and you need help because no, because yeah. that's inhuman. So, yes. Yeah. Should, should we allow S-Chip to pay private insurance companies with standards such as total coverage of bills like oh. Medicare Part C, that the interest that uh, Medicare Part C? Hmm, interesting. I'd say yes, because Medicare Part C has been a resounding success. No one can deny this. I would say yes, providing the family agrees to it, and they get to keep their doctor, and there's no regulations on like in-house providers and all that nonsense. So it's just like a simplified system where the government basically pays the company for the medical, for the medical costs rather than the individual paying medical costs. So under that circumstance, I would support it. Right, okay. So and finally, the last question. Um, should there be a work requirement in parents for children yep. to receive a SCIP program? Yes, I do. I believe the dignity of work is essential, and I do not believe that welfare queens and people like them who are, in effect, refusing to work... I mean, first of all, if the parents aren't of able-bodied or they are a carer because their child is too young... That's, that's not going to be, uh, basically, that won't be factored in because, of course, you wouldn't require a parent caring for a five-year-old child to go out and work. Well, you could require one of the parents to do so. But I think there is certainly, it goes back to the idea of welfare being a transaction, not a grant. That we'll give you mm. something, but we demand something. So I think saying we will do total coverage of all your children's medical bills so you don't, ha so you don't have to go to the ER or you don't have to have medical costs in it, so you don't have to write, fill, pay the medical costs yourself, but in return we demand you go to work. I think that's a compromise. So yes. All right. Okay. So that was the last. One. Should we go on to yeah, SSDI? That was okay. fucking quick. Uh, <laughs> SSDI. <laughs> yes. 
do you know what? I can just modify this into one very simple question. How do we, how do we ensure disabled people get good health care in your view? Is it by a program like Medicare or should we go on the private health insurance system? Um, I think I think it is a program like Medicare. I don't I don't think private health insurance for people who are young, elderly, or disabled should ever be a case. I think it should be owned, owned completely by the government. Um, I think um, I think what should happen is that instead instead of introducing a completely new branch of SSDI, just modify the existing one that's there because you have the people, you have the resources, they're just not being used in the right way. Uh, so it, it, it's like it's like a football team, you know. If if somebody comes in, a new manager comes into a football team, like we'll say Eric Ten Hag, you know, when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer uh, on the was was a um, manager of United, it was all right for the beginning, but then he slowly trailed off and became, you know, pretty terrible. But um, but um, so then uh, Eric Ten Hag is coming. Obviously, he had this Ralph Rangnick coming. We we'll ignore him, but then uh, we'll we'll make Ralph Rangnick Donald Trump, and then and then comes in um, and then comes in. Someone uh, like Eric Ten Hag, a person of experience, and uh, and and it's the same. It's the same team. It's the same resources. The same. It's the same situation. It's the same fans. It's the same everybody. Yeah. But all that's happened is we've got a new management with a new idea, and that and that's what should happen. There should be. It should be complete. It should be a complete revamp of the people who who run SSDI. I, I know it's the government, but the people who you know like run the department of SSDI should be revamped. It should be made more accessible for different people. It should lower the limits for what what classes disabled because it's quite high at the moment, I believe. And I think and I, and I think and I think what should definitely happen, which isn't happening, is that is that the SSDI should automatically be paid. Um, should, should, should be paid to your thing. You, you shouldn't. You shouldn't have to go on a private healthcare. You should be completely public, and it should never even be in the question in the public eye that um, SSDI should ever become private. It should always remain public, and it should always remain free. I agree with you. I agree with you. And now to make up for the fact I simplified it, I'll go ask you about Tricare as well. So, Tricare. Is it weird you think that the USA put the US put so much investment into the veterans and very little to actually to the poor? Um, for the I would say for any other country, yes. But for the USA, I mean, they they've always had this huge, huge, absolute, almost like ideological type of the people from the military. You know, you you go you go um, in Britain and you see somebody from you see you see somebody military outfit, you say. Hello, mate. And you walk past them on the street. In America, you, you wouldn't do that. You, you know, have a conversation with me. Say thank you for your service, and then you get you get. You, they've also had this like I this complete you know symbolism that the military is the entire ideal of American uh, of a, of the American dream and all of that. So I don't. I think it is weird that they're doing that. That they put so much money into like I think nine point six million people. Instead of it, instead of the instead of like nine point six million poor people, but I understand why they do it because the Americans, yeah. the Americans are much more, are much more closer to the military than any other country really is uh, this to is their military. I think that's exactly why the poor. Uh, that, I think that's exactly why the military gets so much benefits, such as Trika. I mean, this is the nine point six million poor people. This is veterans so oh, i mean the way tricare works is that if you are a veteran you get covered your family gets covered your children gets covered you know and it's total coverage of medical bills and it costs 480 dollars a year it is one mm -hmm. of the most effective government programs the that's ever been devised um so there we are 
Um, but do you think that you know, there's 9.6 million beneficiaries and many, of course, being a reservist? Is that, this is the point, actually, that Senator Simpson made, which is that uh, the great Alan Simpson, which was that the there are so many people who've never actually fired a gun or been in battle in their lifetime, and yet they're treated the exact same as him who gave two years of active military service. So do you think there's a case saying that only active military personnel should receive TRICARE? I, I agree because reservists still get this benefit, and you know yeah. people have never actually like uh, should. It. I do think I do think you should lower the nine point six million down to the only people who have actually fought in battle, to the only people who have actually you know get uh, who might have given literally an arm or a leg to the country. So I, I think I, 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 I think I think I think I think those are the only people who should really get this tricare beneficiary. And I could and I could I could possibly understand that because I mean when, when when you come back from uh, when you come back from Afghanistan or you came back from Iraq or you know you come back from uh, Vietnam back called that time when you come back from these when you come back from these wars you're not you're not the same person that you were when you were left, when you went there. You psychologically changed. You you your um your you might have physically changed as well. So there's huge there's huge yeah. changes in yourself, your appearance, and all of this. And and I think and I think the active members of the army and veterans should absolutely get this. Reservists who haven't who haven't been who haven't gone to who haven't gone in there or haven't done it shouldn't get it until they become active members or they have fought in a battle or they are veterans. Because reserve rewarding somebody for signing up isn't 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 what I would call a good plan. I would say you, you, you should reward them for doing it, not for signing up. I think anyone who served in combat should receive it. So whether that's a frontline soldier or someone who was a chef on a ship that was in battle, I think everybody who serves in duty should be eligible for TRICARE. Yeah. Um, that's it, basically. Yeah. You cut the rules down to like two, three million, and then you'd actually say eliminate all cost deductibles, eliminate all the premiums, you know, by only active duty servicemen. What I would not do is cut active duty service pay or end the job guarantee or end the house guarantee and actually build on the Roosevelt GI Bill of Rights, which gave an entire population education and created the middle class in America, along with the unions. So yeah. is TRICARE uh, the step in the right direction for the American national insurance, health insurance, or do we need to return to the market? It's absolutely stepping the right direction. Yeah. Because I can I can I can see what I can see what could happen. You have got you've got um you have the uh army and the veterans and all of that get, getting uh, getting paid. Uh get, get, getting the free health care. Well, you know, four four hundred and eighty six dollars, is it? Four hundred and eighty six? Yeah. Something along those lines, yeah. Yeah. So we'll just we'll just say about five hundred dollars ish that to pay oh, you. Oh um, no, four hundred and sixty dollars a month a year, yes. Four four hundred and sixty. Is that a well, so they pay the, so they pay roughly about four hundred and sixty dollars a year. Now, if you um, so I can oh, then nice. what I can see. Ready? Yeah. $297 a year for a single person, $594 a year for a family. So, so six hundred dollars for an entire family, yeah. basically, yeah. Okay, so if, if, so this six hundred dollars for a family or uh, $300 for a single person. I can, it's going. It's going to the. It's going to the veterans of war and the people who are active members. Yeah. And I agree. And I can. I can understand where people agree with that. I'm not. I now wouldn't be the one to get rid of it. But probably. Uh, but then. But then. But then. What I can see happen is that other. Other key workers, such as you know, doctors, nurses, 
And you also, obviously, I think they have a different thing, don't they? Because they work in the private, no, they might no, have no. better health. No, no, Do they not? They have they standardised not? private health insurance. It's the oldest scandal oh, right. in the book. The people who heal the sick are not then allowed to get their own hospital bed if God forbid they become sick. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, 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 I would introduce some for your key workers, such as, you know, oh, yes. when, uh, such as the fire brigade, the police force. I mean, the police force are not really the most responsible, but, you know, but, uh, and, um, and the, and the healthcare. I would probably also introduce it for teachers as well. Yeah. This, this kind of tricare. And, and I would, and then these key workers then could then spout off to other things. So then you would say, you know, um, carers, you also get it, and then you could say, do you know what? No, I you know, uh, you know, electricians or something like. I you, think you, you know what I'm talking about. For people like engineers, doctors, nurses, yeah, yeah. teachers, police officers, uh, fire firemen, you know, water workers, the frontline workers. I think if they want, I think it's one of the ways to incentivize an increase in frontline workers is to create a sort of tricare style program that, in fact, has extremely low <laughs> co-pays and deductibles. And then has total coverage of um, the medical bills. I think that's a good way of doing it. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly the way I would do it, yeah. All right, let's turn to the popularity. So the popularity of the scheme is actually more higher than Medicare. Medicare's 38%, Tricare's in the 60s. So what would you do? Uh, why is it then that the, the, they, that when it comes to caring for military personnel, they've come up with this amazing programme, which TRICARE is an amazing programme, and yet when it comes to the working class, the middle class, the poorer people, the disabled, the elderly, they've come up with the ramshackled bureaucracies. Yeah. Um, I, think, I, th I think the reason why this is the case, and I think the reason why this will probably always, uh, will always remain the case with America, it's because, like, like I said at the beginning of this, is that they vow, they, they give, they have this sense of ideology to the to the military. If you're, if you're, you know, navy, if you're, if you're, air, if you're the air force, if you're, if you're just the army, if you're the marines, all of these people have these have form of, you know, not I'm not gonna say godlike status, but you know, hugely well respected within America, unbelievably respected. I mean, you command a room if you're if you if you were ex army, you could you could walk and then and then people. Everybody was saluted. The president of the United States salutes you for crying out loud. So it's a huge, it's a huge. Um, I'm going to say it's a huge, it's a huge role to this program, and it's a huge, it's a huge thing. And they and they're risking their lives. They're risking their lives and their risk and the sacrifices. You know, um, leaving their family behind on their own. And it's all these things that all together add it up together. That's why the American people give so much, so much. You know, popularity to Trika. But the thing is, I think I think the reason why not the same introduction has been introduced with you know the poorest in society or you know just the average American citizen is genuinely because there's too many of them. I think I think if there's less of them, like you, you can Ooh, easily you can easily fund ten million people. Here, James, we're on dangerous territory. Yeah, you can. Eat, I'm not going to say I'm not going to say kill all the Americans. Eugenics. Because because no, but, but because because there are ten million ar yeah. army personnel, this from nine point six million, but yeah, ten million ish. It's it's, e it's easy to fund them, so it, it's it's still expensive, but it's a lot cheaper than it is to fund three hundred million people, and that and that's the reason. Uh, that's genuinely why I think that the only reason is that the Sorry, isn't that only is that isn't that why we need then selectivization of healthcare? So. 
you know, Medicare for the elderly, Medicaid for the poor, S-chip for the children, DHIP for the disabled, TRICARE for the veterans, and private regulated insurance for the for everyone else. Um, well, that, that, that's exactly what the politicians are saying. That's why, that's, that's basically what they respond with. Mm. But I think, but if you look at other countries, like yeah. us, you look at France, you look at Germany, you look at Spain, you look at Portugal, you look at Russia, for crying out loud, they all, they all give people, they all give people, no matter what your rank is, no matter, no, from, yeah. from, you know, toilet cleaner to, to the, to the leader of the country, that you will be treated for free. Because that's, that's how oh, free at the point of use. Because that's how that's how we perceive it. We don't perceive you can you do not choose to be ill. No, that's right. You are ill. Yeah. yeah so agreed. if you, if if people chose, do you know what today I'm going to be ill? Fair enough. I can understand that maybe healthcare not no, becoming free. I agree free, with you. But- I agree with you. I don't think I think that the provision of healthcare has to be effective, free of charge, and has to be ensured that people you know don't have to pay to see their doctor, don't have to pay to receive an operation. I agree with you. I, I think the NHS is one of the most civilizing, brilliant things we've ever done in this country, and I still believe that. But all I'm saying is that there are political difficulties to achieving universal health care that often shatters the momentum of presidencies. Mm. It happened with Roosevelt, happened with Truman, happened with Nixon, happened with Carter, happened with Clinton and Obama. So how would we achieve a universal coverage model within the bounds of realism? We need to... We, it, just need, it just needs to be completely... I think... I'm not going to say just introduce it immediately like that. It's not going to work with America. Like it, like it did for Britain. And, you know, for other countries. Britain, we, we pretty much overnight, there's an NHS. That's, okay, how, that's really. how it works in Britain. Not really. No, no but I, I'm, t- I'm, I'm talking about not overnight, but you know, you know what I mean? Oh, not over a short period of time. We brought in America, national health insurance in 1911 under Winston Churchill and the Liberals, and then we created the free of charge system 37 years later. But I do, re- yeah. You, you, know, you know what I mean? But they, no, but, you're but, fucking but, but, history. No, no, because the 1948, when NHS, no, yes. 48, yeah, 1948 yeah. when NHS founded, the day before there wasn't an NHS. No, there was a national health insurance system. Yes, and it's then not there like became the Americans. That, 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 that was the point insurance. I'm thinking. That, 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 oh, that's what I'm saying. free of charge, right? Okay, I see what you mean. Free, you mean yeah, right, free, yeah, okay. Because, because yeah. I, but it won't work like that in America. Because yeah. in America, what's going to happen is that you need to introduce it, like like we said earlier, by by you know groups Increments. of people. So you say, you know what, the teachers have this form of healthcare. Yeah. The students have this form of healthcare. Yeah. The fire brigade have this form of healthcare. The police have this form of healthcare, you know, and all of this. And then you can combine it into one big one saying, you know what, everybody's got this form of healthcare, make, make it the same, just make it free. Yeah, that, that, that's what will have to happen with America compared to other countries. Right, shall we go on private health insurance? Yes, that's right. So, Bernard, should we regulate the private medical insurance industry in principle? Yes. And why? Now I can go. Now I can go on for my longer answer, which is, what regulations would I use? I would go for cost control and medical bills. So cost control, I'd say, people should only have fourteen percent of their income taken on private health insurance, and all medical bills must be covered by law. No more of this shit of, oh, you must go to court to have your medical bills covered. Nope, all medical bills must be covered, and in the in as Charlie Baker in Massachusetts did. 
if you don't cover the medical bills, we're going to sue you for a hundred million dollars per patient and therefore bankrupt your company. And what happens in Massachusetts? Everyone has their medical bills covered because they know they would be sued to death. So that's what I do. Yeah. I cover all the medical yeah. bills. So, talk, talk about or suing down. Should private insurance companies be taken to court if they're not paying your medical bills? Yes, I would do the Massachusetts model where I'd sue them $100 million per patient. <laughs> I would That would drive them into bankruptcy. And then we would nationalise the company and say, fuck off. That was a Republican governor. Charlie Baker came with that idea. And that's how it works in Massachusetts. Where you are sued $100 million per patient. And therefore, in Massachusetts, even though they have a private healthcare system, all bills are covered. There are no co-pays, no deductibles, none of this crap. It's bills are covered, otherwise we will sue you into the ground. Fair enough. Okay, so... Um, in the words of Corporal Jones, in the words of Corporal Jones from Dad's Army, they do not like it up, up em, sir. They do not like it up em. <laughs> <laughs> should, there, uh, should there be insurance access across state lines to, yeah. in effect... Like further competition in the market. Yeah, because I do believe in, in the free market. I believe in competition. I believe in private enterprise. But I think that if you have insurance across the state lines, it means a person from Des Moines, Iowa, if they were to get injured in Selma, Alabama or uh, Nashville, Tennessee, they wouldn't have to then pay out-of-pocket costs because their insurance would also be covered in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. Okay, so um, and another question here. Should there be a government runs health insurance scheme to take over private we talked about this quite a few yeah, times to take over private health insurance companies or should there be or should they compete with private health insurance companies should there be a government run health insurance no because <clears throat> because it's politically too difficult to achieve at the moment i personally would support transforming the current private health insurance system into more like the German system, where people pay their premiums, they pay their monthly payments, and in return they receive total coverage of all medical costs. I think personally that's more achievable, because it, the debate will generally then become, the Democrats believe that your insurance company should cover your medical bills, Republicans believe that you should pay for the incompetence of the insurance companies. Mm -hmm. We win that yeah. debate every day. That debate is winnable. If the debate becomes the Republicans want you to keep your doctor, to keep your practitioner, keep your operating theatre, and the Democrats want the government to nationalise all of it, we lose that debate. So yeah. I think reforming the private healthcare system into more like the German social insurance system, where people aren't going bankrupt, people aren't paying out-of-pocket costs, because of standards and regulations, I think that's much more sensible, yes. Okay, and the final question on this is, um, how do we ensure the 24 million Americans yeah. who do not have private medical insurance, yeah. should, it, uh, uh, should it be through Medicaid or yeah. tax, deductible, uh, tax deductibles yeah. or insurance, or should it be both? Uh, I think it's both. I think you could easily raise the Medicaid threshold to $50,000, $55,000 a year. But I'd also say for those like middle class people on 80, 90,000 who can't afford insurance, make the insurance tax deductible. You cut it by 25%, create affordability. So I think it's both. I think you can use Medicare, sorry, Medicaid 
for the poorer people and tax deductibility for the middle class. And um, so, should I ask you? To, so, yes, should, should we yes, go into social yes. security? Ask me, ask me about social security, and, ask, and I'll do and I'll do jobs. Down specialist subject, yeah, I believe. Yeah, yeah. My specialist is my security. If you've not listened to the article on social security, go on my Substack page, carnd.substack.com, and you'll get latest article on social security. And if you can't bother reading my work because of my poor grammar, my and because I write so late in the night, then you can listen to me drone on and on and on about social security. Okay, so should the payroll tax be raised from 6.2% uh, to what? Uh, to 7, to 7, what? 7%. My model says raise it to the 7% threshold. You can raise $200 billion by doing that. And also, it's politically doable. And okay. because the payroll right. tax hasn't been raised since 1990. So we have to raise it. Yeah, okay. yeah, so should we abolish the wage gap, yeah. the $147 limit, and all the wage earners uh, be required to pay the payroll tax? Yes, because the idea that people earning above $147,000 should not have their wage tax above the 147 k threshold is stupid and ludicrous, and we must get rid of that. So we must ensure that anybody who earns whatever wages you earn, you will pay the 6.7% Social Security payroll tax. And the people, well, there are currently exemptions for state and local workers. You can deduct it against health insurance premiums. So that I say nonsense. You must pay the tax in full. Mm. So with benefits at $1,542.22. Yeah. Um, sorry? Any point you disagree with anything I say, you feel free to chip in. I will, I will. Go on, no. and, you, and you'll know I disagree. Um, when so when with benefits at one thousand five hundred forty-two dollars and twenty-two cents, it's very precise there. Amongst how how much um, how much should it be raised or should it be lowered? It should be raised by twenty percent. So we raise benefits back to nine hundred nineteen hundred and one dollars. I would build on the recommendation of Simpson Bowles because Simpson Bowles, uh, the debt commission started by Alan Simpson and Erskine Bowles. Would say we must have benefits in line with the 125% minimum level of poverty, which is $1,926 a month. That is what I'd raise benefits to, in line with what Simpson Ball said. Right. For Alan and Erskine, okay. are fucking and, geniuses. Uh, yeah. Uh, should we be required to slow down benefit growth for the top 20, yep. 50, or even 70%? Top 70. And, if, and if, we do, if we do have to do this, yeah. how would you do it? So I'd, 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 I'd slow it down for the top 70% of society. The way I would slow it down is by saying this. We would have the bottom 30% would be unaffected. They would have their benefits constantly going in, in, in line with the price increases because prices always rise faster than wages do. We would then say for the middle class, it will be between prices and wages, the median, and for the wealthy, it'll rise, it'll rise in line with wages. Now, in the case that wages rise faster than prices, we will then flip the model around, and the poor will have their benefits in line with wages, the middle class and median, and the richest in line with prices. Okay, so um, um, the time age is coming at 67. Yes. Should it be... And, and, I don't know if you know this about me now, but I'm very against raising the retirement age. But should it should it be raised to 68 or 69 60. by when? And if yep. and if so, should it be should it be then indexed uh, indexed to longevity? Yep, we should raise it to 69 by 2046. 
Now, I know the AARP and all those wretched old lobbyist groups are going to be very disgruntled by that, but you've got to raise it 69 by 20. What you do is you raise it one year, one month per year. Okay? Now, let's, let's get some history up. Let's get some context on Social Security. When Social Security was created by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the greatest president of the United States, he put the retirement age at 65 because life expectancy was 62. Now, the fact is, we have an aging population and we've got to raise the retirement age. So, anyone below 45 doesn't have to listen to me on this because your benefits will not be affected. Sorry, anyone above 45, your benefits won't be affected. But for those below 45, we're going to raise it so it'll be 68 by 2034 and 69 by 2046. That actually puts, in, that puts and, um, 400 billion into the social security program. It's just to do it is politically toxic. So what you're gonna do is you're gonna make you're gonna make allowances. So for example, people who have hard labour jobs who need to retire at 62 should be able to retire at 62. The early retirement age at 62 should be maintained, but we should also allow people who want to keep on working after 69 to do so without losing benefits. Right. Okay, um, I I am very much against raising the retirement age. Why? Because gen because because the average because if you retire, you're, you're practically saying to people you retire at seventy now. Sixty nine is practically seventy, isn't it? That's that, 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 that's what you're saying. To and games. and if they start working at twenty, that's half a century of their life, Dowd, mm. devoted to work. Half Good. a century. I mean, it's it's good for the economy. I'm not going to lie. And it's not it's not good for it's not good for the public. Thing. It's not good for your popularity. Every single time, every single time a politician even talks about raising retirement age, they never get to do it because they get voted out before it happens. James, right now, people are working already going to work 45 years, so it's not making that much of a difference. And remember this: Social Security age is 67. It was raised from 65 to 67. We got to raise it higher so we can, first of all, maintain solvency. But secondly, we're an aging population. People are living longer, right? Doesn't mean we have to punish them for living longer, Dowd. It's not you, punishing you, them. It's you, simply saying it's adapted. What you said, what you said there, Dowd, yeah. is that people live longer, so they should be punished to work it's not longer. Punishing. It's not. It's simply saying that this social program, the social security, which is a fantastic, fantastic pro social program. It was created 90, 87 years ago by Franklin Roosevelt, modified in 1983 by Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, has to be modified again. And we modify it by saying life expectancy is much higher than it was in 1935 or 1983. So we should modify it accordingly. I'm not saying that we should raise it to 69 by 2028. I'm saying we should raise it to 69 by 2046. So the people who are expecting their benefits at 67 will receive their benefits at 67. Right? And if they want to retire early, they can do that. But all I'm simply saying is that because we're in an ageing society and because the life expectancy has to go up, not downwards, the social security system has to reflect this. But it shouldn't, it shouldn't be reflecting by making people work longer. But why? I don't mean why. Why, why. why should people, people have to work longer because they're living longer? People are living longer, James. People are living longer. What's the issue? 
People have been living for 100 years since, since the Victorian era, darling. Really? Yeah. And the world is better than it was in the Victorian people era. People are naturally living longer, Dad, because yeah. that's just the way, that's the way that, that's the way medicine so has evolved. The way the so what you've just said, what, what, yeah, what you're saying to yeah, people is that you're going to have to work longer because the human race is too advanced. Yeah. How does that make sense? Why should a government program not be adapted to the modern world? That's what we're asking ourselves. Why is the social security retirement age? It can be up? adapted. It can be adapted to the modern world. I, I'm not saying, but it needs to be adapted in other ways rather than just raising, raising, you know, the retirement age. Saying two it worked years. longer by two years by 2046. Alright, so I feel, I feel, it's I, like Bolton. Like so to... Simpson Bowles recommended that we should raise the retirement age from 67 to 68 by 2050. That you'd start in 2010 and you'd raise it. One year every two one one month every two and third years till twenty fifty, right? And the AARP and all them wretched people went absolutely berserk about how dare you raise the retirement age on poor old seniors. And what happens now? We're gonna have to raise the retirement age one month every year. Now for heaven's sake, if we get six years down the line to twenty thirty, sorry, eight years down the line to twenty thirty what are we then going to have to do? Even more draconian changes. Surely, we have to accept the retirement age is going up and we've got to do it in a humane manner. If we do it now, we can do it more humanely than we could do it in 2030. I'm just, I'm just saying, though, that we're, po we're probably never going to agree on yeah. this policy, like, like school vouchers. Like school but vouchers, I can, yes. I can... I can assure you, Dow, that that will be political suicide if you introduce it. Not if you do it bipartisanly. How no, did, no, how did no. Ronald Reagan get not, away with the... No, listen, how did Reagan get away with doing the retirement age? He got a commission, he brought Tip O'Neill, um, Jim Wright, Tom Foley, Dick Gephardt, and he brought in Bob Dole, Howard Baker, James Baker, and um, Senator Simpson in a room and said, fix it. So that way, the politics was gone from it, because both parties did it. And that's what I'd do. I'd appoint a bipartisan commission, take it out of politics, and say, forget the elections, forget the ads, we won't do any negative advertising, but let's do what's right. And this is the right thing to do. Along with raising taxes, raising benefits, you know, because remember, to give, you've got to give the Republicans something. The Democrats have got the tax increase, the benefit increase, they need something, and their two gripes are the retirement age and savings accounts. We give them, we get what we need. Okay, fine. Okay, so, should, okay, I'll move on to the next question. Should yeah. cost of living adjustments be indexed price, uh, in that, oh, sorry, should, should cost of living adjustments be indexed into price increases, yeah. and should it be abolished for loads above 200000 $200,000. So, yes and yes. So, I think we should build on, again, Simpson Bowles. Anyone who doesn't know what Simpson Bowles is, just Google Simpson Bowles Commission. You'll read the report. It's 67 pages and it's in plain English. Thank God. Anyways. Or I'll put the hit. Or I could put the committee on on my story tonight and anyone can want to see it. Two and a half hours and you know, etc. Anyways. Which says that we should link the cost of living adjustments, so the increase in benefits, 
So the change CPI. In plain English, that means benefits should go up in line with price rises. Sensible. And the, those couples making up 200000 a year and those seniors making 100000 a year above shouldn't receive one. I think is also sensible. So I, right. think, I think wealthy seniors shouldn't be required to have a cost of living adjustment because they've also got their occupational pensions, their standardised pensions, they've got their own savings. Uh, so, but those, and I wouldn't apply this, by the way, to any current social security claimants, maybe those um, about to receive benefits. And okay, so, I would chain it to the CPI, yes. So should we, so moving on now, should we increase benefits for the over 80s? Yep. We should and if so, how? 10% year, ten percent three years, year on year. I would increase it over and above the, the 20%, I'll go for 20% increase, then I'd do chain CPI, but I'd do 10% on the chain CPI for three years. Okay. So basically, oh, the seniors would receive an extra $700 over the next five, a month for the next five years. So their benefits, instead of being $1,500 a month, will be about $2,200 a month in five years' time. No, wait, right, okay. sorry, three years' time, three years' time. Should widowers, um, should widowers receive total payments? Yep, I think that it's perfectly sensible to say that if you've lost a loved one who was, make, who was being a wage earner, that you should then receive assistance from the state. And thankfully, the social security system does a lot for the widowers, and I would say the widowers should have total benefits. So yes, I would agree with that. Okay, and um, should the one uh, should the top one percent be taken out of the social security altogether? No, because actually, I said if you asked me a month ago, I'd say yes to this idea. But here's my issue with this now: is if you do it to the one percent, what's to stop them from doing it to the two percent, the three percent, the four percent, the ten percent, the twenty percent? It's a slippery slope to the abolishing of social security. So I'd say no. It's a right, good okay. idea. And, uh... It's a good idea, but it's a slippery slope. Right, okay. Um, also, what is a... Not what is... Would you support diverting 2% of the payroll tax into private accounts to increase the rate of return? Or is, or is this just privatising Social Security? Well, it's not, privati it's not privatising Social Security if you keep it within the Social Security system. Now, let me think. Because I, I go back and forth on this one. Because I think, look, let me set the case. There are advantages, okay? If you do the 2% of the 7% into private accounts, you will quadruple the rate of return on Social Security benefits. So you quadruple the rate of return. However, if you invest in private stock markets, if 2008 ever happens again and the stock plummets, you'll see people's pension benefits go through the floor. So, no, I wouldn't support it, only because of the volatility of stock prices Though I could easily see the case for it, as long as it's done within okay. the social security system, but not at and this last, moment. And the last question of social security of this episode: yeah. How do you ensure greater individualisation of the social security system? Universal individual savings accounts on top of social security. This is the plan I personally have, believe in very passionately: that you pay the payroll tax, and that gives you the monthly social security check. But people should also pay 3% of their earnings into a savings account. That's their money going into the savings account. Now, this will be on top of the social security system. What this would like to do is to have a higher rate of return. Let's do uh, a quick calculation, shall we? So, compound 
Let's say we take 3% of the $70,000, which is $210. No, it isn't. It's $2,100, uh, which is about 150 a month. No, it's more than mm -hmm. that, isn't it? That's like 175 a month. Let's say they start working at 18, finish working at 69, so 51 years. Let's say it's a compound rate of 7%. Oh, no initial investment. That person, James, will have $915,570 in their account. $915,570 divide 12 divide 9. Sorry, no, divide 12 divide 12. Divide 12 years is $76,000 a year. That would be about, James, about how much are we mm -hmm. talking? $1,400 a week. That is quadruple the current social security checks. Right, okay, that's not bad to be fair. No, it, it, it provides you with a much greater rate, rate, rate of return on the stuff. And it's their money, so they can take it out whenever they like. If they want to take it out when they're 45, they should be allowed to do so, because it's their money. If they want to take it out when they're 70, that's equally fine. And if they want, if they like working so much, they want to keep working until they expire, they should also have to do that because it's their money. And then the money we've passed on to the family as an estate without uh, the death tax. Oh, people usually call it the inheritance tax. Yeah, well, Just for those people, people who don't speak down calm, that's what that means. <laughs> yeah, alright. So uh, should we move on to the job program, man? Yeah, we're going to have to quit me on to the job call because my battery is beginning to run out. Right, how long are we at this now? We're at an hour and 13. We'll do, we'll do, so, we'll, we'll do welfare and we'll do a separate episode on jobs. Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. With welfare, uh, we'll just focus on the guaranteed minimum income idea. Okay, fine, okay. So am I asking you then? Yeah, uh, no, I'll ask you, I'll ask you, we can debate it. Right. So do you believe in the idea of the guaranteed minimum income as a principle then? Um, that's, um, I, I, I can't remember, there was a Democrat calling for it during the primaries, wasn't it? I can't remember his name. It, 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 was, it was calling for something similar. Andrew I think Yang. it was, um... Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang, Freedom that was it, yeah. Freedom Dividend, yeah. And, um, and at the first, the first time I heard it, I thought, you know, that's a really good idea, you know? Making sure everybody gets a minimum amount. But then, well then, what? Then, then I realised, I thought to myself, you know, you're giving two grand to, you know, to this family or however much you give to this family you also have to give it to like the richest of the rich you're just giving them free money for no reason and then and then the guaranteed minimum income um which is a bit different i believe which, which basically nobody can earn less than this i'm guessing that's what it i guess that's what he's saying yeah that's what it means and um and i and i agree with that because it's but i mean it needs to be set at a particular rate you need you need to say how much i wouldn't do it per year Per annum, no. I'll do it per month. Per month, this is the guaranteed minimum income you can get. Because if you do it per year, somebody somebody could work a few could work a few days a year and get paid this amount. Right. So it has it has to be done per month, or maybe maybe per week, and you have to. But um, it can't be done like over a period of a long time. Yeah. 
And I think, and I think, I haven't really looked into the figures of it, but I think it needs to be enough so minimum wage becomes obsolete that you no longer need minimum wage because the minimum guaranteed minimum income would fund the minimum wage in the first place. So I think um, it will definitely work in principle. In practice, probably not. I feel like I feel like there's low, there'll be loads of loopholes to get around it, and I'm sure the business will do it. So, so I think. No, you can carry on, down to carry on. Is your view is the negative is negative income tax or the universal basic income the better idea? So, is it saying that we should provide direct tax assistance to the poor by saying that someone zero to fifteen thousand dollars put a zero to twenty five thousand dollars put a fifty percent negative rate and they get twelve and a half k, or is it saying that we will pay every American a hundred dollars about eight hundred dollars five hundred dollars a week? And that's it. Um, so is it targeted at the universe? I don't think paying. I don't think paying. Um, I, I, I don't think paying somebody X amount of money would work. Um, um, I don't. I don't think that would work. You say pay this amount of money for the thing, or this amount of money for the thing, um, or five, like you said, five hundred dollars. You say for the UBI. I don't yeah. think that works. Like like yeah. for Andrew Yang, I don't think. I don't think that would work at all. Um, negative income tax is a different thing. I would say it would definitely work. I would say it would be kind of like a form of welfare, really, wouldn't it, in a, in a safer thing. Um, it would basically become become a welfare system. But um, I, I would still provide welfare. But the welfare, what I would do, instead of saying you can spend this welfare on anything you want, I would make the welfare limited to what you could spend it on. Correct. And then with the negative income tax, you could spend on whatever you want. That's what I would do. So the welfare, so you can only spend it on food, this, this, housing, and this, food, energy. housing, water, energy, and so on. That, I, I, I maybe Agreed. petrol for your car and stuff petrol, like that. Petrol, yes. That, that, look, 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 loads of things I would say you can use that for. And then when it comes to your negative income tax, free for whatever you want to spend it on. You can spend it on sweets, you can spend it on, I'm just saying oh, this I is see, a car, but so you, oh. you can spend it on what you want. Okay. So what about, so would you actually, so you'd have the welfare programs and the negative income tax side by side rather than amalgamated? Yeah. Uh, yes, but I would decrease the welfare, uh, uh, the welfare program, introduce in, make sure that's only funding for this X amount of whatever you want to be funded for. Obviously, this we thought about quite, quite rigorously to see what's the basic minimum that people need. The welfare will fund the bare minimum for, this, for people. That's what welfare will do. Negative income tax instead, obviously, if you're earning the negative income tax would provide to you, um, would then let you spend on whatever you want. All right, let's go one last question. Actually, do you think there are any ways to do it through the free market? So, for example, um, tax deductions for charities, subsidization for food bank providers. Is there any way through we could provide, incentivize private charities to provide greater levels of welfare, or should it be within the state? Um. I think I think for the first for the time short term, absolutely get the get get the free market into it. Help uh, charities and all this. I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not saying give benefits. You know, massive business corporations no, to say no, you know what help no. help. I'm, I'm talking about charities, like food yeah. banks, and you know, like water raid and all of this yeah. all of this kind of stuff. Uh, yes, I absolutely agree that they should definitely definitely have to make their lives a lot easier cover business costs and all that that should be done by the government by reducing the tax, making it zero, I would say, for charities. And then what I would then do, instead of, um, in, and then what I would do, then slowly, the charities, whilst doing that in tandem, what I would also do, 
It's also increase increase support, increase it all from the government side, increase more investment from the government the side. So finally, sorry, we don't do the other way around. Start initially off with the government support, then go on to private and private philanthropy. No, 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 no. I think I think if the if your people are suffering because of the for for whatever reason, it should be the government's job to fix it. I think I think it's a I think you're missing a failure in the government system. If you have to rely on private enterprises and mar- on the market to fix the issues yeah. that have happened in your country, agreed. I think I think, that, but it, but obviously I'm not going to say no to charity. Ch- charity is a good thing, obviously. Yeah. No, I do agree with you. I do believe that the state has the uh, purpose of administration of welfare in a free society. If you have the individualism, that p- there are people in the hardship cases, and the state has a duty to t- care to yeah. people's needs. Uh, anyone listening to my last episode would would remember the ten duties of the state that I outlined. But one last thing, and then we'll conclude this episode. Why is there ignorance about welfare in your view? Because I've talked to mum about it the other day, and she didn't know, for example, that people on unemployment benefit only receive ninety eight pounds twenty a week if they're above twenty five, or seventy four pounds seventy a week if they're below twenty five. She didn't know. Okay, I think. Was I think. I think. Yeah, uh, I think I think there's a reason for this ignorance about it because there's this form of I don't I don't know what to say in America, because, but for Britain much worse in America, this, much worse in America. It's, oh, it's much worse in America. Worse. But in Britain, there's there's this stigma about welfare, you know. And if if you put in welfare, you immediately you know one of those people who are just nicking money for the government because you can't go to work. Yeah. That's that that's that stigma around welfare. Yeah. So pe- pe- people perceive it as. You know, people don't say, you know, there's lots of people who say, you know what, your welfare will help you out. There's lots of people who just think, your welfare, I don't want to know anything about it because I don't ever want to be in that situation. Yeah. So, and I think, and it's not a situation you could help not being in. It's a situation, it, it's a situation where you would work and maybe not go into it. There's also a situation where you might just be frustrated upon it through no fault of your own. It, w- it would definitely work both ways. And I think, I think there's this stigma around it because, you know, there are, there are people who take advantage of welfare. And it's it's a sad thing. It's like it's like um, it's like drawing it's like drawing COVID when you had a when you had a you know some deaths due to the uh, due to the vaccine, like about three four deaths the vaccine, and people thought it was dangerous. Yeah. Um. That it, it's that kind of thing. You know, it's about about what a hundred like a, a few a few hundred people who are taking advantage of welfare, and yet they they completely disillusion the entire public's belief on the welfare system. So then, and then all people think about welfare, you know, people just try to nick money from the government and nick money from the NHS, or yeah. in the America's case, nick money from the batteries and nick money from that. And I think, I think the point of welfare and the point of, um, the point of, uh, you know, helping the people has been forgotten since it was introduced by FDR. It's been forgotten since it was introduced by Clement Attlee. Correct. It's been forgotten completely. And I think, and I think the way to get it back is not to say everybody in welfare is great. No. The way to get it back is to say, do you know what? There are people, they're working, they're trying, they do not want to be poor. They don't, they don't, no, 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 they don't wake up in the morning and say, I love the situation I'm in. So they are working every moment of the sun, yeah. majority of them, that is, to try and get out of the situation. And it doesn't help when people just, you know, you know, create this stigma about it obviously people who are you know uh, you know um 
ignorant about it. Yeah. It's, a, it's a bit different to not knowing stuff about it. I'll say people who are ignorant about it are just single-handedly just choosing to ignore it. People not knowing about it would still want to know, yeah. just don't just don't know how to get the information. Well, but I, mean, I think like, people... Like, for example, the, was it 14 million in poverty, 11 million of those people are working. You know, yeah. so it's like the idea we say, oh, these people are on benefits, they are lazy, they're, you know, welfare queens and all. No, it's not true. Yes, all right, some of them are scoundrels, but most of them aren't. Most of them are people who are being paid so little by their employer for the purpose of extortionate profit. Not good profits, but extortionate profits. And then they have to turn to the state. And I think that yeah. the deliverance of the welfare state is important for people if they are not capable of providing themselves because of age, disability, income, but they should be allowed to try, you know, t as I said, turning welfare from a grant to a transaction. Yeah, and, and, I think, and I think that would help definitely reducing the ignorance about yeah. welfare payments. Right. And I think, and I genuinely just believe it's just the public's misconception about thinking that, you know, the, all the welfare, people who get welfare today is just, you know, just spend it on whatever they want rather than spending what they need. And, and that's just not the case. And the stigma about this just needs to, needs to just go away. And then that in turn would get rid of the ignorance and it would absolutely reduce the quantity, not the quantity, but the quality of what the welfare has been spent on. It would reduce the quality of welfare itself. It would it. And if the support's there from the public, it will absolutely, 100%, make sure that the that um that welfare people on welfare will no longer you know get stuff cut because it's popular to do by the government especially by conservative and republican governments they cut welfare because they seem it's popular because you know people don't understand it properly but if people do start to understand the problem if, if people educate each other and themselves on welfare there will no longer be a cut in it, yeah. and that might that might in turn just lead to less people being on it in the first place. It's like cautioning to reform it, but how do you just want to live on sixty one or seventy one pounds a week because of unemployment benefit? You can't, and it's, can't. it's about yeah. it's about having compassion for those people. It's like the old quote, isn't it? People despise, uh, people don't care about people in poverty or people who are suffering until they're in poverty and suffering. It's about understanding that. Yeah. You could become poor at any time. You could lose your house, your home, your energy bills. You could lose your job at any time. And if you want people to treat you with compassion and affection in your time of need, treat others the same way you should be treated yourself, rather than sticking yeah. your nose up to the people in the ghettos, the people who are homeless, you know, or people on welfare. Yes, you can reform it. And I spend a lot of my time thinking about welfare reform. But you can only reform it if you believe in it. You can yeah. only reform the something, whether it's the NHS, the education system, the welfare state, if you genuinely think it's a good idea. The people yapping yeah. about welfare reform the most are bloody chattering class intellectuals. No, wait. Chattering class, upper class snobs, not intellectuals, who have never understood what it's like to be poor, never saw what it is to suffer, never saw what it's like to be in pain, and they look down on the poor people. I'm saying, and they talk about welfare reform because they, have a fucking, they do not have a fucking clue what it's like to be poor. I'm saying, if you want to reform the welfare state, which we've got to do, no serious person says we don't have to do welfare reform, we do it in a way that helps the poorer people, yes, to be coming to jobs, but also ensures they're not in poverty. The tackling of poverty is essential. Now, next episode, I want to talk to Torin. We're going to get next Sunday, talk about the NHS system, how to reform the health service. We have never actually done NHS reform. We've done that. 
They didn't have to actually rant on about the NHS and the history of the reforms, but we never had a discussion about the reforms and how it should be done. The week after, we're going to talk about job creation, looking at how to create jobs and what to do about job creation, maybe touch, talk about social security. But now going forward on the podcast, we're going to start talking about ideas as well. So we're going to look at ideologies like social democracy, we're going to look at free market thinking, we're going to look at scholars like Friedrich von Hayek, John Maynard Keynes and discuss them. Yes, we're going to still, and we've got a new series of calls for the UK coming called The Prime Ministers, where every Prime Minister from Attlee to, to Johnson, we're going to talk about them as well. So this will be a new series now in the US called uh, Looking at the Issues Within the United States Politics. Right, so until next Sunday, goodbye.